Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. Blue skies, sunny day here in Kamloops. A uh, real pleasure to be joined on the line this morning on the panel. Global BC's Richard Zussman, Vancouver Sun's Rob Shaw, and of course, Vaughn Palmer. Welcome all. How are you all doing? All good. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, why don't we start off in the speculation tax. Uh, Belcara residents are threatening a class action lawsuit. This follows, of course, their appearance in the legislature. Uh, as they say, they're being unfairly targeted. Uh, I'll start off with you, Rob. Uh, does this bring sort of a new twist as far as any speculation tax trouble the province could possibly be facing? Well, I mean, politically, the Belcara residents, I think, had one of the most effective um, attacks against the speculation tax that we've seen uh, and their stories uh, when they came to the legislature about, you know, in many cases, uh, members of their families building cabins 50 years ago and hauling the logs up the, the ocean and building them themselves and now, you know, inheriting these cabins that don't even have potable water, uh, road access, and they're being deemed speculators. I think politically, it was a direct hit on the speculation tax, uh, you know, and I think did a lot of damage in the public's mind. Legally, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not sure how a class action lawsuit could cause the government to have to, I guess, reconsider things. It seems like a pretty clear-cut tax, and it applies to certain areas, and they are probably not the right areas, but I'm not sure what the legal challenge will do. I think... Uh, I think in the short term, you know, the political um, attacks may cause the finance minister next year to, you know, have those consultations with the mayors and possibly look at an exemption. But for now, I think government's just holding on to this tax and hoping it rides out. Yeah, but there are situations now where uh, what could be sort of lightly called a bad PR is happening. Uh, Richard, in your story, uh, one of the situations that caught my eye in the Belcara residence story was uh, 71-year-old Nancy Strange. She's got a $26,000 cabin, land value $1.3 million. She's going to have to pay the speculation tax. Not happy. She's written the finance minister, uh, who apparently has responded by advising her any exemption wouldn't come until next year, which, which strikes me as, um, from a public relations perspective not perhaps the best way to handle things you know and i spoke to nancy about a few different things here and one of them is around the legal element that rob mentioned one of nancy's big concerns is the fact that the legislation came late in 2018 but they want to bill residents for the entirety of 2018 so they are concerned about legally how that would work considering the tax has only legally been in place uh, for a few months of that year so that's one of the legal issues that they may be approaching. But yeah, a lot of this comes down, like you said, Shane, to you know the the, the, the optics of how it all looks and works. You know, this is Nancy Strain brought to the legislature, a picture of her father standing in front of the cabin that he built. The land is worth a huge amount of money because Bell Care for the listeners that aren't familiar is in this incredible location. Uh, just west of uh, Coquitlam and just on the other side of the water from Deep Cove in North Vancouver. And But it's very hard to get at. Many of these cabins are water-only access. They aren't the sort of places that can be rented, which is the intention of the rule. So we'll have to see how the exemptions work. But like Rob said, the, the people of Belcara made a very effective argument about how this tax is misplaced for them. 
Now, Vaughn, obviously none of us are lawyers, and uh, legal particulars aside, if they do launch a class action lawsuit, um, could the could the province be uh, nervous or wary about um, some details about the, the logistics or the decision-making behind the speculation tax being aired in public court that could, uh, again, from an optics and PR perspective, cause some damage or no? Yeah, I think the government would be worried about disclosure. Um, the If the lawsuit goes ahead, one of the things they'll be looking for is how did this tax come about and how did the many arbitrary decisions get made? Uh, the mayor of Bel- Belcara, as you know, has been posting pictures on the Internet of lavish places in Whistler that aren't taxed and these ramshackle cabins in Belcara that are being taxed. Uh, this tax is, uh, we'll set aside the HST. Uh, other than that, this is the worst handled tax I've seen in 35 years of covering provincial budgets. It was announced without any legislation. The initial fact sheet, which was all we got, had to be redone once or twice. When we finally got the legislation, it was rewritten at the urging of the Green Party. And now, you're right, the Minister of Finance is saying, well, you know, hang on, maybe we'll change it next year. So, you know, talk about half-baked. This thing has been uh, messed up a bunch of times, and it adds to the suspicion, Shane, that this is not a routine product of the tax department in BC that drafts tax legislation, that it's being imposed or shaped from outside government by ideologues who just want to go after people with two pieces of property and don't much care who it catches. So I think you're right. If this thing goes to court, or even if it gets to disclosure, I think the government runs a great risk of being embarrassed when people see how this tax came about. And to the Mayor of Belcara's point, Rob, I mean, this is a question that's been raised before. Uh, the resort community of Whistler uh, meets all the qualifications for the speculation tax, but yet it is excluded while we have an argument about, uh, in other communities about why the tax is being applied. How did Whistler skate on this thing? Yeah, I mean, it's a continued question that comes up every time someone's upset about the speculation tax. You never really get a clear answer from the finance minister on how Whistler um, is out of this, other than kind of a vague reference to that it's, you know, like a resort economy and therefore, you know, the tax doesn't really apply. But look at Belcara. It's not exactly, you know, <laughs> I mean, it, the government has this weird ability of a speculation tax to point to a community and say it has a low vacancy rate and land values have risen sharply in the last couple of years, but it can't take that same data and apply it to Whistler because of some sort of special resort designation. And it's a very difficult argument. It's never been explained well by the government. It's exploited by critics of the tax, and maybe rightly so, but I... I mean, it's just one of the many parts, as Vaughn was saying, of the tax that doesn't make any sense. It just literally doesn't make sense. And that's the real challenge in government defending the speculation tax is that parts of it just are not explainable because it is, I think, driven by ideology. And it is increasingly, you see the defense of the speculation tax is, a uh, oh, you own a home and you happen to own a second home and that home is worth a lot of money on paper. Boo-hoo. You know, I would, I would love to own a second home. I'm happy to pay taxes. That, that's the NDP MLA defense line that's coming out, and it is more about class warfare, I think, than it is about 
the details of how a tax actually works and why it applies one place and, and not somewhere else. Yeah, and I've said this in the past, though. There is a good chunk of people in uh, uh, urban parts of this province, Metro Vancouver specifically, probably southern Vancouver Island. Uh, there's a chunk of people there uh, who are just happy to see something done on the housing front, though. They don't care about the specifics of the tax. They hate this problem. They hate the unaffordability, and they're glad to see something's being done. That said, though, Richard, I mean, to your point, um, they should have designed it to exclude, you know, waterfront shanties. Uh, we were told, you know, vacation cabins and, and properties that British Columbians hold would be exempt. And here we are uh, fighting this battle over a year into this thing. There are a number of reasonable solutions, Shane, that could be done here. You know, they are looking at things case by case. I think that could be expedited and sped up so that you have somebody. There aren't that many cases like this. You know, we met these people from Belcara. Uh, there sounds like there's a little bit more than 40 homes in Belcara where the spec tax um, applies. You could have those people sit before a panel of three and make a decision case to case. You could then, you know, provide exemptions over periods of time, right? Three years, five years, so that if the individual who has that property decides to sell it and, and benefits from that, then they would be uh, responsible for paying back the tax over the period of time. There's lots of different measures. You could do a deferral system like they have for seniors uh, with property taxes. Again, when you sell the property, you would have to pay back the amount you deferred because likely you're going to make a lot of money on that sale. But these people do not want to sell. These are family properties. There's another woman we met who came to the legislature who says that this is the only place they can afford to go on a summer holiday. And clearly one of the big differences between this property, these properties, this community, and Whistler is the location, right? It's so close to Metro Vancouver. You know, it's a, if you did hypothetically live in this water access only cabin, it would take you excluding the trip on the boat, <laughs> probably 35 minutes to get to downtown Vancouver. It's this incredible location. But I think the government needs to start looking at these very simple solutions to avoid, uh, you know, the class action, Rob, made lots of really good points about how legally it's probably very challenging. But politically, uh, this is going to hurt them. And you're going to see as this class action proceeds, if it does, there will be more and more media coverage about it. And every time there's media coverage about it, it makes the NDP look like they really failed on this tax for many of the reasons that Vaughn mentioned. Yeah, and Vaughn... To, if Shane, just yeah. jump in there. Like, it, you know, as Richard raises a good point that why not tax a property when it's sold? Well, that's a capital gains tax. And we asked the finance minister when she brought the speculation tax out, why didn't you do it this way? And her response was, you know, well, why don't you penalize people who actually sell rather than someone who's just holding on to a cabin or whatever? And she said it doesn't help rentals. This is a tax designed to improve rentals. Well, nothing that's going to happen in Belcara in any outcome of this is going to help improve rentals. So there's, a, there's kind of a logic loop here that goes around in circles that doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and I think Richard's right. Like, you, there are better ways to have accomplished this goal, but they're stuck with the tax now. And they have to defend it to the hilt. Yeah, and while I'm not question of defending it to the hilt, Vaughn, I asked this question last week, and I think it's worth asking again. Uh, is the problem, is the pushback on the speculation tax at the point yet where the government has to publicly make a shift or an adjustment to address all the drama? 
Uh, I don't think so. I think they've made it pretty clear that it's going the way it is this year, but they've also said there's a makeover coming. So, you know, how long it'll be like this is another matter. Um, the, the the thing Richard pointed out is important for someone like a senior on a fixed income uh, who's, you know, this woman was making $22,000 a year in a pension and she's facing a $6,000 bill on the speculation tax. She can defer her property taxes, but she can't defer her speculation tax. So if the government really wants to offer her relief and say, well, wait till next year, and maybe Belcaro won't even be included, um, a waiver that allows people to defer those taxes would take the pressure off uh, the genuine hardship cases that are here of people who are on a fixed income and can't pay the cash up front on the speculation tax. All right, guys, let's take a quick break here, and we'll get uh, right back to our conversation uh, with Rob, Richard, and Vaughn after this. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer, Richard Zussman, and Rob Shaw. Uh, guys, it sounds like the sounds like the Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, First Nations consultation process is nearing its end as we uh, the clock sort of ticks down on the decision the federal government's going to have to make in May. Uh, yes, no, maybe so. They've bought the pipeline. One assumes it's not going to be no. Uh, but I guess it, it raises the question, uh, do we have an idea, uh, and I'll start with you, Richard, do we have an idea... Um, what the threshold might be when we consider First Nations consultation or no? Oh, I'm here. Sorry, Shane. Oh, oh there you are. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's the problem that we've had throughout the process here is it's unclear what consent from First Nations actually means. You know, is it a veto power? Is it meaningful consultation? What do those words actually mean? You know, does the project need to have approval from all the First Nations along the pipeline? Does it majority approval? Is it unanimous approval from the First Nations? How about those First Nations, like the Tsleil-Waututh, whose water would be uh, directly impacted by a spill? So, you know, there are serious questions. We've heard from many First Nations groups throughout the secondary process around First Nations consultation, as well as the new round of National Energy Board consultation, which, you know, got the thumbs up uh, from the NEB, that those First Nations are still concerned about orca populations, about salmon populations, about uh, potential spill. So, you know, I think the government will come back and say they did more consultations, but I don't think we're going to have, we're for sure not going to have unanimous consent. I think there's going to be a lot of First Nations that are still angry. You know, I'm at an announcement right now with Premier John Horgan and Federal Minister uh, Wilkinson about salmon and significant investment for salmon. You know, this government is trying to make steps, but they're not going anywhere close the federal government is to appeasing First Nations around their concerns uh, of the Trans-Mountain Pipeline. Uh, Vaughn, Ian Anderson was in town yesterday addressing the local regional district. I snuck over in and, and uh, had a few minutes with him. Uh, and he told me he's extremely happy with what he's seeing on the Indigenous consultation front. But he also added, when I asked when shovels might go on the ground, that there's he's expecting a lot of court action yet. Uh, if we get a yes in May, is, is construction a sure thing after that or no? This one for me? Uh, no, sorry. We must have lost Vaughn. Uh, Rob, are you there? 
I'm there, yeah. Okay, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll direct that at you, and we'll, we'll reform the panel here in the bottom commercial break. But, uh, uh, yeah, how do, we, how do we achieve a pipeline in this era of sort of hyper-partisan, non-stop court challenges that Mr. Anderson apparently is still expecting? Yeah, well, I mean, first off, we're way past the point of free prior informed consent from First Nations on the pipeline. Now you hear Ottawa's very careful wording on this, that they are open to accommodations when possible to satisfy the concerns of First Nations in this consultation. They've got a retired Supreme Court of Canada, um, you know, Chief Justice or, or Justice who's um, heading this process of consultation. And, you know, they have... The difference this time is that they have a mandate to actually engage and offer some type of accommodation. So the criticism on the way Ottawa did this last time was there was just a bunch of glorified note-takers who went out to listen to First Nations concerns and nodded their head and didn't say anything and didn't offer anything. And there's a very clear path that the Federal Court of Appeal set out on how Ottawa can do this consultation, even if all the First Nations don't agree uh, and still offer meaningful change to the project in some way or another and listen to the concerns and, and genuinely try to address them to the best that they can, realizing that you're still building a pipeline that's going to move oil in it. Uh, and that, that path is not you know, inconceivable, the way the court laid it out. And uh, you know, the, there's, I think, what, six teams out there under this former justice's uh, purview and... I fully anticipate that, you know, Ottawa's going to come back and say they've concluded it and they'll make some changes. Look at the way that the NEB reconsidered the Marine component of this. It came back, it reiterated the same things that it did the first time around, and it offered, what, 16 additional recommendations on things you can do to improve, um, you know, mitigate the risk on, on killer whales. Didn't make everyone happy. In fact, didn't make any of the original critics happy, but accomplished, I think, a, a legal check uh, which was what the Court of Appeal had asked to be done. So there's still a way for this to be built, but I don't think it's going to, this consultation will conclude with First Nations of, of any kind who are opposed to the project saying, great, we're really happy with it now. It'll just be more of a kind of a legal check mark. Yeah. Uh, okay, uh, we'll take a quick break to the bottom of the hour. Vaughn Palmer, by the way, just emailed me and said he's suddenly feeling very sick and apologizes he had to bail. So I'm hoping he's feeling better uh, and that nothing crazy is going on over there. But uh, thoughts with him. Uh, we'll continue uh, with Rob Shaw and Richard Zussman here on Inside Politics after the news to the bottom of the hour. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local news now. Computer Center. This is Inside Politics. Once again, Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome back. We're talking to Rob Shaw and Richard Zussman. We did have Vaughn Palmer in line give you an update. It sounds like he might have had a bit of stomach flu, so uh, he is uh, not on this last segment. Uh, hope to talk to him soon and hope he feels better soon. But uh, uh, let's uh, attach a, uh, attack a grab bag of issues here, uh, starting off with uh, a little bit of health care news. Adrian Dix, the health minister uh, this week, rolling home support services back within several health authorities. Uh, the BC Care Providers Association is not very happy with that move. Uh, Richard, as far as you're concerned here, uh, it's not an interior health, my local health authority yet, but uh, sort of the three coastal health authorities. Uh, why was the move done and is it, is it sort of fall in line with the, how the NDP perceive health care delivery should be done? Yeah, I think the simplest reason for why it was done, and, and I think Rod knows a little bit more about this than I do, but that it's the contracts were up. And when the contracts were up, they weren't automatically going to 
uh, get reassigned to uh, private providers. And so because those contracts were up, the government tried to make a decision. And then it leads very nicely into your second question, which I think is an important one around whether this uh, provincial government is, is looking towards more consolidation of things run from within government. And I think that's a probably pretty positive sign for that because we've seen uh, Health Minister Adrian Dix move more and more towards that uh, in his fight against privatized health care, but also more privatized um, providers uh, in this province. And, you know, the, the health care providers led by Daniel Fontaine, obviously very angry about this. They keep citing um, surveys that show high public satisfaction. Uh, but the bottom line is the province says this will make it easier for audits. They will make this more efficient, and they believe this can provide better care for people uh, at home uh, in terms of providing uh, better oversight. And Rob, uh, the BC Care Provi- Providers Association, uh, to that note, out with a release this morning again, firing back at the move. Uh, they're predicting it's going to cause 500 job losses. Uh, your take on this thing, good move, bad, what do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, the care providers are going to fight it tooth and nail, and they're a very powerful group with, that are very articulate and eloquent in their arguments. But the government is basically, they, they want these services in-house so that they can control them better. And there's a lot of good arguments that the health minister is making that the seniors advocate is backing up in terms of, you know, when you do home care for seniors, there's this great demand in the morning when a senior gets up and needs help getting dressed and bathing, getting their breakfast, and then there's this lull. And then there's another demand later in the day, and it's being it's difficult for the private contractors to manage and also for the, the care aides to manage their time and when they're on call and when they can do it. So the idea is government brings it all in-house, better manages it. Uh, care aides can be used in other parts of the healthcare system when when times are a little bit slower or different parts of the day. So in that sense, it makes a lot of sense. But there is that ideological component which raises the little red flags in all of our minds. Why is government doing this? Is it a unionization drive? And in this case, no, the care workers are already unionized in the private sector, so it doesn't mean they're now unionized, and it doesn't mean they get a wage increase. But there is a kind of, I think, underlying ideological component that the NDP would prefer these type of jobs are controlled in the government rather than in the private sector, and the Liberals would prefer the private sector and its efficiencies to have it. So that there is that. And I guess the other question is on child care. Is this going to be a sign of things to come when it comes to child care operators? A lot of us wonder as government pushes out towards $10 a day, will there be some move to make a unionization drive on the private child care providers is there going to be some move to bring those into government or the education ministry or the children's ministry in some way? So it's a warning sign, I think, that the government is willing to do things like this. But um, in this case, it's not, I think, something people should light their hair on fire for. All right. Uh, the agricultural land reserves, there's been some changes there. Ostensibly, if you're going to apply for an exclusion application, uh, taking land out of the ALR, whatever the argument might be behind that, you now have to funnel that through uh, your local government, uh, public body, or the province, uh, who will then go to the ALC ostensibly on your behalf. The Liberals are jumping on this, saying, hey, listen, you're stripping away uh, the definition of a person. It's against the rights of farmers, etc. Lana Popham come back and says, hey, this is all lies and fear-mongering. This is this reason streamlining, not a big deal. Uh, Richard, how do you read this particular kerfuffle? No, I think it's similar to the argument Rob was just making about the differences between these two parties, right? The NDP, uh, heavy on consultation, heavy on government involvement, 
You know, municipalities want to be involved. Give them the opportunity. The province wants to be involved. Give them the opportunity. And the Liberals are saying, you know, give these people opportunities to make the decisions themselves. You know, free, more free enterprise, more free market. And I think we're going to see this argument made out in a lot of different policy decisions. You know, as the NDP starts stripping back the changes that the Liberals made while in office for 16 years, the NDP will start, you know, providing more power to... Uh, governing bodies, more powers to municipalities, more powers to overseers to run, like uh, provide oversight on decision making. And so, you know, the the ALR decision um, specifically, I think, is a lot of talk, and you know, we're going to see this political battling back and forth. But it does come to that core point that the Liberals want to see less involvement of government, and the NDP wants to see more, and and that comes with more consultation and more oversight. Uh, Rob, one of the issues here uh, was that uh, it's a massive downloading on local governments. Lana Popham fires back in that and says, well, in Kamloops, there was a, exactly one uh, exclusion application last year. She says that's the same story across the province, a maximum of two, maybe three exclusion application requests per local government a year. So that's not a massive downloading. And critics will fire back and say, well, if it's such a small issue, then why are you making the change? Yeah, I mean, it's, well, the truth lies somewhere, I think, in between both the Liberal and NDP arguments. But, I mean, local governments always had a role in ALR exclusions anyways, and they could, in fact, stop them, uh, applications coming before the commission, uh, if it was contrary to land use planning and the local land use plan anyway. So there is some of that. But I think why the Liberals are going so hard on this is for two reasons. One, they represent many of the constituencies that have farms and farmers, and they had a very clear path for the ALR and the ALC. And they also look at Minister Lana Popham, and they see one of the most um, ideologically and politically driven cabinet ministers on the NDP bench, someone who has allowed her activist uh, agenda to get the best of her in her early time so far as cabinet minister on things like fish farms. And they look at this and think, huh, has Minister Popham overreached or landed herself in the glue again? Because the ALR has always been one of her pet projects. It's always been something she's very interested in as an opposition member, something she's had a strong views on. So I think they're going to go very hard on this, because, partly because the minister. And they think that somewhere buried in this is a, is a mix-up or an overstep or a kind of activist move by the, uh, the minister. And that may be interesting. I think that they'll probably dig deep into this file and find every little word and every little meaning uh, for, you know, because it represents their constituencies, but also because it represents a risk, I think, for the NDP. Uh, Andrew Wilkinson, uh, Richard, you you caused a bit of a wave among liberal circles uh, recently when you uh, published a story saying, listen, uh, there needs to be some renewal in the party. Mr. Wilkinson says some of the older MLAs are on their way out. Uh, last night, uh, your colleague, our colleague, Keith Baldry, um, landed himself in a bit of a, a social media firestorm uh, for basically, uh, my, my perception is uh, he was just offering some free PR sort of political strategic advice. The liberals, uh, some of them didn't take to it too kindly over Andrew Wilkinson uh, addressing a chamber group at a uh, Tony Yacht Club in uh, in North Vancouver. Um, good advice from our friend Keith that the Liberals upset about no good reason. Does Mr. Wilkinson need to uh, be careful how he frames himself, where he is, and what he says? I think part of this is that the Liberals forget when they were in government, like many of these MLAs were, they had lots of staff 
and communications people to vet locations, uh, to work on optics, and all of those things are gone now that they're in opposition. The headline of the story was Andrew Wilkinson speaks to group at West Vancouver Yacht Club, and that's what people jumped up on. It looks elitist, right? And I don't think that the newspaper writer was trying to be ironic here or try to create controversy. That's where the event was. But I think the Liberals need to be hyper-aware of where they do events and what they say at those events because it comes back to that main core point that Andrew Wilkinson, the Liberals, are out of touch and they're elitist. It's the same problem that John Horgan had in the last election around his temper. You know, people said that's a major issue, and every little time the temper would come out, including during the radio debate where he told Christy Clark to not touch him, that blew up because it was that core issue. Can John Horgan control his temper? The question now is can, John, uh, can Andrew Wilkinson shed that reputation of being elitist and out of touch? And, you know, even though he was invited by the Board of Trade to go to the Yacht Club, somebody from the staff should have said, can we do it at a different location? It's not going to look very good. We want to be in touch with people beyond the sort of elitist crowd. You know, yacht clubs may have low admission rates. I don't know what they are now, Shane. You know, it may be a place like a sports club that anyone can go, but this the sound of yacht club. <laughs> Sounds elite. <laughs> That's what Andrew Wilkinson needs to get rid of. All right. Uh, it's, it's actually an interesting point on the, uh, on the John Horgan situation because I remember the Liberal Party uh, staffers of the day were busy trying to get the angry John hashtag and sort of stir up that social media crowd and here we are uh, a year and a half or so removed from that moment and we see the NDP jumping on the Yacht Club and doing exactly the same thing in reverse sort of trying to get foment that social media storm. Uh, Rob, your interpretation of the whole thing? Well, first off, thanks for nothing, Shane, because I'm on a Twitter diet and I had to delve back into that murky swamp in order to research this to comment on the story. So thanks, you dragged my mental health back down into the gutter again. <laughs> Sorry, pal. <laughs> Ten minutes, but yeah, I mean, look, I think on social media right now, there is a dominant group of New Democrats, and you could probably peg them at maybe less than 100, but they are, they are the influencers right now, and uh, anything you do on social media is, uh, by, by them is going to be criticized, and so I'm not sure it's reflective of anything other than the mob mentality on Twitter right now, but it is, I agree with everything Richard said, it should have been flagged by the party. In the end of the day, you know, it, it's often your opponents in politics who frame you. Um, you try desperately to show a side of yourself, but you get framed by someone else. And the liberals will have to just recognize that, that they have already kind of lost that battle a bit. And now it's just a matter of, you know, in the angry John situation, the NDP weren't able to overcome that. It was just angry John. He, and, and voters decided anyways that that was okay. Uh, you can't always counter the way your opponent frames your leader, but um, you can charge forward anyways and do your best to mitigate the damage. And, and the Liberals don't help themselves by allowing this to continue to happen. And I don't think at the end of the day this is that big of a deal, but the cumulative effect of all of these things may be something uh, voters remember. All right. Uh, guys, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Appreciate the time. Thanks. There we go. There's Rob Shaw and Richard Zussman. Also, thanks to Vaughn Palmer, who was with us earlier. Had to leave because he got sick. I hope he's feeling better. We'll take a quick break. On the other side, we'll talk to Attorney General Critic from the BC Liberals, Michael Lee. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. 
Welcome back. Real pleasure to be joined on the line by the MLA for Vancouver, Langare, also the opposition attorney general critic, Michael Lee. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, good to hear your voice. How are you doing? Good, good. Uh, the uh, spring is in the air down here in Vancouver. Yeah. Throughout. It's... It's also uh, getting warmer up here, so that's good to see. Uh, Michael, uh, legal aid lawyers have thrown down the gauntlet. This is a, a long-running dispute uh, that predates the NDP government. It's been going on for a number of years. Uh, it seems like this government's having the same as the previous one did, but uh, ostensibly the argument is around funding, uh, more robust legal aid services, uh, essentially making the whole system better and more affordable. Uh, I was caught uh, talking to Graham Kay this morning. Uh, he told me that uh, now about 80% uh, of all people People in family law cases in court are now representing themselves. I'm sure you know as a lawyer uh, what that means as far as court delays and stoppages and kind of uh, providing uh, an overall clogging of the system. Uh, from your perspective, uh, what do we do here as we head towards this April 1st potential job action? Well, I think uh, John Horgan and David Eby uh, and this NDP government have an opportunity, uh, which they have not met, uh, to deal with uh, what has been uh, a real deterioration in terms of uh, legal aid lawyers. Uh, there are many that are uh, leaving uh, that profession in the sense that they're not able to sustain their practices uh, at the rates that are uh, being provided. And so uh, I understand from uh, the association, uh, having spoken with them and, and uh, to mem other members of the legal community, as I uh, tour around the province when I can around uh, AG critic roles, and meet with uh, lawyers in the legal community. This has been, uh, apart from uh, the minor injury cap and the introduction of the Civil Resolution Tribunal for minor injuries, this has been uh, the top issue of concern in terms of how do we continue to support uh, access to justice in our province. And this government has had uh, two years, uh, close to two years, to address this. Uh, they have promised to uh, increase funding for legal aid. Um, and what they've done is they've continued the previous government's uh, funding of uh, initiatives by the Legal Service Society and others uh, in family justice centers and uh, First Nation courts. Those are all good initiatives to improve access to justice. But uh, clearly, uh, in the face of uh, what has been raised expectations, uh, this government has not met them and has not met its commitments uh, to the legal community in terms of providing more funding for legal aid. Is it a matter of just funding, Michael? As you point out, and, and Legal Aid, the Legal Aid Association has already put this out publicly. Uh, there's about a thousand lawyers practicing now. That's down from about 1,500 a few years ago. Uh, they're even looking for, on the funding level, to return to what we saw in 1992. There's not many people who say they want to go backwards in funding, but apparently they've lost so much. Is it a simple matter of funding, or how else do you address legal aid? Shane. You know, I think access to justice is, is something certainly that uh, all members of the legal community uh, need to assist with, and they do. Uh, as you know, many lawyers uh, provide pro bono services. Uh, there has been uh, motions put forward uh, within the legal community to uh, make that more mandatory, to have it more widespread. And so I, I think certainly the sentiment within the legal community is that um, lawyers... Um, all around the province, uh, continue to look to do more to, to assist with this. Uh, I mentioned the, the initiatives uh, in terms of clinics and access centers. Uh, those are important components. I used to be on a, a board of a, a not-for-profit, the Justice Education Society, which uh, opened up our courthouses to 
educate young people and others about legal information. Uh, those are other things, but uh, to do to help address and ensure that uh, British Columbians have a good understanding of the legal um, um, guidance in terms of advice and how to navigate the legal system. But fundamentally, what this is about uh, is how do we continue with a core component, which is these legal aid lawyers that um, aren't um, making ends meet in terms of sustaining their practices. And it has knock-on effects, as you say. Uh, many uh, um, litigants, as a result, going through uh, family court cases or mental health-type uh, social service issues, dealing with uh, government and other regulators, are going in uh, unrepresented. And they're having to deal with complex claims in a way that they're not getting that support. And more importantly, when I hear from uh, others within the criminal legal uh, bar, uh, we're losing uh, a lot of lawyers in the mid-space mid in terms of senior lawyers are, are continuing to provide uh, legal aid services because they have a more uh, well-formed practice. Junior lawyers are able to, to train in this, but it's the middle part that's missing. And I think that uh, it's going to be a real threat, and this is the reason why I think all has come forward. Now, it's not just a matter of dollars, it's also a matter of ensuring that we have uh, civil society with a, with a well-formed legal system and legal process in our problems, and to do that, um, most vulnerable British Columbians, ones who can't afford this kind of legal assistance, they need to be provided with that. Uh, April 1st, uh, not only the deadline for legal aid lawyers to either reach a deal or they begin job action, it's also the beginning of changes at ICBC. Uh, we don't have much time left, but I do want to ask you how you feel about uh, how the Attorney General is uh, looking to curtail what he calls the dumpster fire at ICBC by uh, trying to rein in uh, what he calls out-of-control legal costs. Uh, what do you think of what, what's going on in that front? I've been very concerned. I've expressed my concerns to the Attorney General uh, in supplementary estimates and estimates uh, through the, the last uh, year. Uh, looking at the rapid uh, transformational changes that he's made, as the Attorney General, which I think arguably have stepped on the rights of individuals, uh, British Columbians, injured British Columbians, those who are most vulnerable, uh, expanding the definition of minor injury to include brain injury and concussion when he said that he would not do that. That definition now includes 80% of all injuries that ICBC might face or motor vehicle accidents in this province. It's not a minor injury. These, this is a wide-sweeping definition. Uh, he's, he's taken this and pushed it into the CRT, as we know, which will also be problematic and challenging, as we see on April 1st, uh, minor injuries being dealt with by, by that tribunal with, not, with a lack of experience in, in doing that. They don't have a track record in, in dealing with uh, complex minor injury claims like this. And more importantly, more recently, uh, in January and February, uh, the Attorney General changed the rules of court to limit the number of expert reports to three for complex claims. And he's uh, given instructions to withdraw settlement offers uh, that were on the books and uh, replace them with lowball offers. These are all examples, Shane, of where I believe the Attorney General is, uh, and this government with John Horgan is stepping on the rights of individual British Columbians for the sake of cost containment for a Crown Corporation that continues to be quite challenged, whether it's mismanaged or otherwise, uh, this is a, a clear conflict and an area of concern where you have the Attorney General who should be standing up for the rights of individual British Columbians, the laws of this province, and he's doing it for the benefit of a Crown Corporation for which he's responsible. He's got too much under his mandate. Michael, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking some time this morning to talk to you. It's good to hear from you. Thanks, Shane.
That's Michael Lee. He's the MLA for Vancouver Langara, also the opposition attorney general critic. We're going to take a quick break here on Radio NL's Inside Politics. On the other side, Agriculture Minister Lana Popham. Local news now. Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back to Inside Politics. As we were talking about with the panel just a short time ago, uh, the changes to the agricultural land reserve, specifically on how exclusion applications work, uh, has caused a bit of a political kerfuffle. And now BC's Agriculture Minister is firing back. Pleasure to welcome to the program, BC's Agriculture Minister, Lana Popham. Lana, why don't we start off with the issue of these changes to uh, the ALR. I know the BC Liberals are pouncing and, and trying to make some political hay here. Are uh, they ever? <laughs> why don't we start with the first thing? They're basically saying you're defrauding rocking the 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 definition of a person uh, and turning it over to local governments uh, and other entities to decide the fate of somebody's farm or whatnot. Your take on that or your response to that? Uh, well, local government's always been involved in the process. And so um, what they're talking about is the uh, we have, uh, in this legislation, we've proposed that exclusion applications, and it's really clear, I have to be very clear that it's only exclusion applications to the ALC. All other applications, anything to do with non-farm use applications, uh, like subdivisions or um, applications to put in an RV park, all of that remains the same. It always has gone through local government and then to the ALC. Nothing's changing with exclusion applications, and we've pinpointed exclusion applications for one very good reason. It's because they are one of the most detrimental uh, types of applications if approved to the ALR, because it creates these holes in the ALR. Uh, It uh, discontinues continuity on the landscape of the ALR, so it, it creates challenges for farming when we see pockets that are removed from it. So just on exclusions, uh, previously they were like every other application. The landowner would fill out an application, send it through to local government. Local government could weigh in or not weigh in, and then forward it on to the ALC for a decision. Now we're saying if somebody wants to exclude land out of the ALR, they will work with their local government and local government will uh, create that application and submit it to the ALC. And the reason why we're doing that is because local government works very hard on their local area plans, and most local government these days, right across BC, have uh, agricultural advisory committees that they're working with because food security is top of mind for local government and provincial government. So we want to make sure that if there's going to be an exclusion out of the ALR, that local government uh, is on board and it works with the planning they're already doing. But the the opposition is making hay out of this, which is really unfortunate. And I'm, I'll tell you another reason why it's unfortunate, besides the fact that I think they're spreading a lot of uh, mistruths and probably doing some fear-mongering, which is, it, it's disappointing. But just for Kamloops, for example, just Take a guess how many exclusion applications there are. There was in 2018. No, I hate guessing games. Okay, I'm not going to make you guess. <laughs> one. There was one. And so 
the story that they're telling on how this is a massive download onto local government and we're taking away people's rights, it's just completely untrue. When I go through the list of our local governments, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. It's between one and three applications a year in every single one of them that I'm looking at. And so it is not a massive download. But the thing that we heard from local government when we were making changes, including about uh, changing the way the panel system works within the ALC, everybody was saying we can't lose regional representation. So with that in mind, we took one of the things that's most detrimental to the ALC and we're like, the local government will know best. They can weigh in first and then they can submit to the ALC. It really streamlines the process and it makes it quite transparent instead of, applicant filling out an application who knows what happens at local government and then on to the ALC where they are trying to base their decision on sometimes no information at all from local government so I think it's a step in the right direction. Uh, I was talking to uh, the mayor of Kamloops who had some concerns about uh, going through the process noting that city staff don't have any soil specialists or anything like that I'm not sure how intricate uh, the exception application is and whether that's a valid concern or not could you address that? Sure. So, uh, and that, that is true, that local government may or may not have agrologists on staff, but we're not expecting that. When you look, and, and it, it's disappointing that the member brings up uh, the inconvenience to local government because he was in local government. So he knows that uh, local area plans basically map out how a local government wants their region to work and to develop into the future. And so uh, when you get an exclusion application, say it's in the middle of an area of farmland, it's being excluded for the idea of perhaps development. It creates this hole in the middle of the ALR uh, where local government will then have to address uh, services that they provide to that area, roads that access that area. It changes what they're doing. They can, they can be blindsided by these applications. And so we thought it was mo- much more fair that they were involved right right from the get-go. We get back to the genesis of the question, though, uh, with a concern directly from Ken Christian, the mayor of Kamloops, about his staff not having any soil specialists or anything like that. Is that a problem or no? I don't think it is, because we're not asking local government to weigh in on whether or not it's uh, good agriculture land. The agricultural land reserve has already been established as soils, uh, land that's in the ALR has been designated as agricultural. We don't need them to weigh in on that. We just need them to say whether or not they support a piece of that land being removed from the ALR and turned into something else. The Agricultural Land Commission, once they have received that application, they are the experts at deciding whether or not it is, um, it, it's good for agriculture or not. If the changes do mean more work for local governments, uh, I note that uh, I believe the formula is, right, or was anyway before the change, uh, was $900 for an exception. 300 of that would go to the local government that's doing it, the other going to the ALC. I believe that's increased by 600 so $1,500 now, but the 300 to the local government doing the work still exists. If there is more work, should that formula not be tweaked to reflect that or no? I think if we hear feedback from local government that this is a massive amount of work that they have to do because of this change, of course we would consider that. But looking at uh, the number of applications that are happening within BC, I don't suspect that's going to be the case. But, you know, we would be op- if we hear that from local government, of course we would listen. All right, perfect. Well, I got you on the phone, another sort of ALR query. Uh, we're hearing concern now with, uh, here in Kamloops, there's a bylaw, and I'm, I'm 
think it'll probably sort of reflect what happens around the province to do with the legal cannabis cultivation, not, not the retail, but the growth of the product. Um, and they're going to restrict it to industrial and agricultural land reserve lands. Now, my understanding is uh, with the ALR, there's a mandate to have a soil-based building or facility in order to do that. But Health Canada regulations make it pretty close to impossible to uh, have a, a, a facility to grow legal cannabis without a cement floor due to the security, et cetera. I, it's not impossible, but I'm told it's pretty close. Uh, any idea how we square that circle? Well, I think we're talking about two different things. We're talking about medical cannabis versus recreational cannabis. And so with medical cannabis, yes, the federal government has stringent guidelines, and I would be surprised if they approved a facility that was soil-based. But recreational uh, Cannabis doesn't have those same regulations, so you could actually grow uh, cannabis in soil in the ALR for recreational use. And we see that uh, that market developing within British Columbia legally. So, um, but, you know, the, the, the idea of paving the agricultural land reserve with cement bunkers everywhere is something that I've heard a lot from local government. People are afraid that we'll basically have no soils left. We, last summer, we gave the local government the tool to uh, prohibit cannabis being grown in the ALR if they wanted to, uh, and that was really giving them a tool to kind of um, slow the process down. What we have seen with cannabis is that the changes have happened so quickly, and it's a little bit like the Wild West, and uh, local government didn't really know what was coming. Uh, Provincial government had to do some catch-up as well, and so we've given that t- tool to them to slow it down. Um, but we haven't given, we haven't prohibited uh, cement bunkers uh, in the in the ALR for cannabis at a provincial level. We have given that choice to local government. Lana, thanks so much for your time. That was Agriculture Minister Lana Popham. We'll take a quick break from one cabinet minister to another. BC's Energy and Mines Minister joins us next. Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 AM and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center, this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Good morning. Welcome back to Inside Politics. Real pleasure to be joined by BC's Energy and Mines Minister, Michelle Mungal. Michelle, uh, thanks for taking some time this morning. Uh, interesting and concerning report uh, from BC's Auditor General yesterday about abandoned uh, wells uh, that seem to be proliferating in serious numbers across this province with a pretty tangible uh, potential cost to taxpayers. Uh, first off, your, your reaction in general to the report you read yesterday? Well, I found uh, the Auditor General's report very affirming of uh, what's been going on, what we knew was going on, and uh, some of the solutions that we've been putting forward over the last year. So a year ago, we had new legislation specifically dedicated to cleaning up uh, this uh, issue around the orphaned wells, uh, making sure that taxpayers aren't on have a better way of funding our restoration fund from industry, but also that we have a comprehensive liability management plan going forward so that we're managing this liability and we're ensuring that public safety and health and protecting our environment are at our top of the list. 
Okay, how do how do we do that? Because it did paint a rather concerning picture and some uh, serious questions about a companies that are uh, going under and leaving us with a big mess to clean up. The amount of money they may or may not be leaving behind or in trust to help us do that, and some uh, I don't know how to describe it. Perhaps some falling down on the job of the BC Oil and Gas Commission. How do we strengthen that so these companies can operate? We're also safe against them going bankrupt, and that there's money in there to clean things up when push comes to shove. So first, let me just say that under the, the BC Oil and Gas Commission, they actually have been very proactive in dealing with this and working with the Auditor General. The The previous government uh, did not take their responsibility in terms of managing liability seriously. When we came in, the Oil and Gas Commission was very quick to say, Minister, we have a problem and we need to fix it. And I said, well, let's get to work. And so we have new legislation. We've been uh, developing the regulations that are going to be coming into force very soon. And uh, our new fund, uh, our levy system, rather than tax on production, but levy on liability, is active as of April 1st, the beginning of this fiscal year. But we've done some other things. So we're looking at preventative measures. So uh, companies who have a history of being insolvent or being uh, bad practitioners and practitioners in terms of their land management, they're not going to be able to continue operating here in BC or even get started in BC. Uh, we also have a multi-year plan for cleaning up the wells that have been left behind by insolvency and a way to fund that. That doesn't put the burden on taxpayers. And we're looking at regulations in terms of ensuring we have stronger enforcement and compliance. And then when we do clean it up, we're involving First Nations as the Auditor General recommended us to do. And we already have uh, a pilot project with uh, Fort Nelson First Nations on that. Uh, just to circle back to that one issue there, because uh, it sounded like there, there's the potential for a significant cost to taxpayers on, on the current cleanup situation. Uh, it, just so we all know, will any of this, from what the picture we have today, end up on the backs of taxpayers to any great degree or, or not? I don't think so. Uh, the approach that we've taken with the new levy uh, should be able to fund our, our uh, multi-year plan in cleaning up uh, these orphan sites. Perfect. Uh, the other question I had is, as far as, as properly de- decommissioning a well site, I mean, uh, if I remember the number correctly off the top of my head, it sounded like there was something around 10,600 sites that were not restored properly in the province currently. Um, with the legislative changes that you guys have, have tabled and are going through the system, is that enough to give the tools to the Oil and Gas Commission to properly uh, compel operators to decommission things the way they should be, or do you need additional tweaks? In a word, yes. Uh, The legislation that we've put forward allows the Oil and Gas Commission to develop the regulatory system necessary to be more proactive in getting companies to restore their wells. And uh, that's precisely what we're trying to target here. And uh, like I said, those regulations are going to be coming into spring and we're going to be moving full steam ahead. In the specific intra, uh, uh, instance of quattro exploration and production, uh, 75 abandoned wells, uh, about a $19 million restoration cost, and zero, zero security deposits. Uh, cases like that, do they need specific looking into or no? I think what we need to do is definitely learn from that, is that uh, going forward uh, with our new levy structure, that that situation is not going to be happening uh, first. And and secondly, in terms of how do we remediate uh, the existing problem is that we have that fund that all of industry pays into. And so it is still an industry paid 
for fun and it's not something that's going to be coming out of uh, the general revenue or, or taxpayers' uh, general uh, coffers. Okay. Uh, the current situation, we got about 326 orphan sites. As I mentioned, about 10,600 well sites not restored properly. From your perspective, uh, legislative changes aside, um, what is the timeline to, to get those numbers down, restore the wells properly, and deal with the orphan wells we have out there so that those numbers um, in a large part diminish? Is it going to take a year, two years, any idea? Well, it's it's pretty obvious that we have uh, quite a, a large problem on our hands, um, but we do have a plan to fix that problem, and we're looking over a 10-year time frame how we're going to be able to uh, get that all of that work done. It's a substantial amount of work. It's a substantial amount of cost, and so we have a plan to tackle that, and we're going to be implementing that uh, as soon as our regulations come into force, which is very shortly. On the overall environmental impacts, Michelle, any concerns with the current situation as far as negative impacts on the environmental side to this province? Uh, well, one of the things that uh, we always have to be mindful of is in terms of protecting our environment. And that, of course, uh, is aligned with protecting public health and safety. And so going forward, I think we have a very strong plan for that. Uh, the Auditor General, my conversation with her, recognized that we actually have a very good regulatory system, but there's definitely need for improvement, and we've been making those improvements uh, starting last year. I assume the Auditor General is going to do an update on this uh, based on the history of this particular file. Are you confident that when that update comes, be it in uh, two or three years, we'll see a, a drastically improved picture or no? Well, I'm personally very grateful that the Auditor General has her watchful eye on this because uh, BC is leading the way. Other jurisdictions who have a similar problem have uh, not started tackling it in the way that we have. And so we're taking leadership in Canada. So we're going to have a lot of lessons to learn along the way. And having the Auditor General put uh, her lens on it and let us know what we're doing well, what we're not doing well, where we need to make improvements, to me, that's very welcome. Uh, Michelle, thanks uh, Thanks again so much for giving me a call back. I really appreciate that. Good to talk to you. Have a great weekend. Great. Thank you. You too. And that was BC's Energy and Mines Minister, Michelle Mungal. And that's it for this week's edition of Inside Politics. Uh, the Woodford Show returns on Monday, and when it does, Attorney General David Eby will join us. 12.30 Merit, 13.40 Ashcroft, Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL, 6.10 a.m. Local News Now.